0: Today's chat is about hamstring injury prevention in the Australian Football League system, especially directed at the AFL, the elite system, but the chat has relevance at all levels. It's certainly aimed at the practitioner or the student or the graduate or the master student who's really interested in getting into the system. It's not aimed at people within the system. If they want to listen to it, hopefully they get something out of it, it may be of interest. I have been out of AFL for a number of years, but I have been involved in elite sport since then and trained many fast athletes and been involved in team sports. Also keep my ears to the ground. So hopefully what I am going to say is relevant by right, looking at the, the rush of research that's occurring, the emotive aspects of hamstring injury prevention, hamstring rehabilitation, trying to tie together what is termed the multifactorial model and how it all links together to ultimately get a better result with hamstring injury prevention. In Australian foot, rules football, we sometimes refer to games as eight point games. I often think hamstring injuries have the same eight point connotation. If somebody hurts their collarbone in a game and is off the, off the ground, they've hurt their collarbone you're down a player. If somebody, especially a really good player, does their hamstring, there's a lot of emotion to it. My supporters are quite angry. Questions are already being raised up in the coach's box. Furtive looks between strength and conditioning coaches and medical staff. It's just an emotional injury. Then if you go to Twitter, recent debates over whether the hamstring acts isometrically or does it act eccentrically. Was it motion-charged tweets, to be honest, and certainly right out of context for discussing something like an injury. I certainly, in my 20 years as an AFL high performance manager, and it was the most emotive injury. Now, it is still the most prevalent injury, as the AFL website said, the AFL club's biggest injury headache, hamstring strains, and this was after the two seventeen injury survey. So, 4.9 new incidences per club in 2017, 16.6 games, on the sidelines. Apparently, that in 2017 uh, yeah, was the lowest in seven years. It, it, it says that a decade ago, 25.8 gains were lost to hamstring strains. But if you, if you go year by year or block two years together or three years together, there is a fair bit of variation in these stats. But I, I want to talk about the prevention more than uh, rehabilitation, but the recurrence rate is way down. And I think uh, medical staff, Smithing missing staff, clubs uh, are doing this a lot better. That part of it is definitely improved heaps. The biggest aim is always to prevent an injury. We talk more about rehabilitation, but it's about prevention and, and there is a statistic that the biggest indicator of getting an injury is having that injury before. Certainly when I, once, once I sort of heard that and, and obviously had been in, in, in the sport for a number of years, I had new players, first-year players. I tried as hard as I could to avoid injury in general and obviously a hamstring injury and then obviously a recurrent hamstring injury because you've got a lot of implications. It's still going to be the biggest injury. What tends to happen is, given the emotion of this injury and people are very opinionated, rightly so. I think you know, a lot of people have had great success from doing extra strength or doing Pilates or or massage or, or whatever. Recently, we've had some really good research by Jordan Mendel-Guccia, who is a physiotherapist. He, he talks a lot about the multifactorial factors in hamstring strain injury. In 2012, he did publish, he created a small model with obviously the injury being at the centre of it, and he just put flexibility, strength, core stability, architecture, which is the way the muscles set up, previous injury, which we spoke about, and fatigue. And as he said, with these caveats in mind, one must try to consider a less reductionist model in which the whole body is involved, assuming that parts are not homogenous, and that intimate relationships are present in a non-random fashion. This new conceptual model would assume an interconnected, multi-directional and synergistic interaction between all parts. It's at 2.12, it's 2.20 now and we've, we've probably added lots of factors to that model, or theories to that model. It's the lack of sprinting dose in pre-season or just the lack of sprinting dose per se, the lack of maximum velocity week by week, so therefore you're not maintaining adaptive responses. We're now talking about running techniques. One area also that was omitted in the original model was the the issue of load management. Have you done enough training? Obviously in this case it's your sprint load, but in general your load. You have a whole nother emotional debate now with the acute chronic work ratio, so I don't want to go into that. There's heaps of other things that could be added into that model. There's no way you can stop hamstring injuries because of the... Uh, two joint muscle, the multiple muscles involved, muscle actions and then adding AFL stresses with four quarters, rests, bending over at full space, kicking, fatigue, running fast. It's a demanding sport so it's folly to, to try and uh, assume that hamstring injuries are going to be cleared because of some mm. fantastic new multifactorial model where you input everything. And I think the reason is, as Jordan Midlugucha said in a recent podcast, is that all the factors are involved in this multifactorial interact with each other. I agree with that. I think that's where research, which is totally necessary, and they talk about reductionist models, which just means researching something very specific, a single situation. It can occur like calf strength or hamstring eccentric strength. The problem is these factors interact with each other. If one of these factors is way out of bandwidth for an individual, it could be the reason that somebody gets an injury. Or if a number of factors are a little bit out of bandwidth but enough, the player may be prone to injury in this case hamstring injury and I want to go back to this multifactorial model factors the multifactors interact with each other Ronald bar produced pretty landmark research in 2016 I think British Journal of sports medicine why screening tests predict injury do not work and probably never will with critical review because we would had you know the functional move of the screen we've, We've now got, you know, norboard tests. The abstract says, although there are a number of tests demonstrating a statistically significant association with injury risk and therefore help the understanding of causative factors, such tests are unlikely to predict injury with sufficient accuracy. The final step needed is to document that an intervention program targeting athletes identified as being at high risk through a screening program is more beneficial than the same intervention given to all athletes. To date, there is no intervention study providing support for screening for injury risk. Now, I don't want to go any further than the the abstract because it's a podcast, but that comment, the final step needed is to document that an intervention program targeting athletes identified as being at high risk through a screening program is more beneficial than the same intervention program given to all athletes is pivotal. So obviously, it's older players because older players get more hamstrings, players that have had... Hamstrings before whatever, so they're the high-risk players. So it's not as if tests in isolation are bad. And if you if you read that abstract again, to do a nordboard board test and look at individual eccentric strength, I think it's a fantastic idea. And I want to go into that later. It's never as simple as we've done a test, we know what's going to happen. So we go back to the multifactorial model, and we go back to the comment. All the factors and heaps of factors interact with each other. But the factor that's not mentioned here, and we will elaborate later on, is especially in an Australian rules football club, how all the different staff interact, cooperate, how they work synergistically, how they work hand in glove. Are their egos parked at the door? Are mistakes made because of lack of communication? Have they got a common process and do they tick off all the factors that they need to tick off to prevent this injury? Different departments and the staff so that could be the strength and conditioning, the medical staff, the physiotherapists, the masseurs. Once things become dysfunctional or communication processes are hindered or egos mean that people are just sort of pulling at each other and doing different things, you're going to get extra injuries. And extra issues. Now that's probably more relevant in a rehabilitation process but it's actually pretty important also in prevention. So that's another factor and that's never really mentioned in these multifactorial models. It's possible then that there can be a, a greater percentage of emphasis placed on different factors within a multifactorial model and if you apply this multifactorial model to the team you can have certain percentages within an organisation or a team and then to an individual those percentages will change relative to that person's needs or risk factors. A little bit of history now to hamstring injury prevention. I did tweet recently that the great Jesse Owens, who ran 10-3 on cinders without blocks and did jump, a long jump that really suggests he was a 10-flat runner, to be honest, in these days. Would not have done a lot of the classic hamstring injury prevention work that we, we do now. Can, can it be theorized that obviously the critical factor is running fast which is one of the tenets of the multifactorial model and i go back to a very very famous vfl player of the well many years ago pastor doug nichols who won numerous running gifts was, was deemed to have run under even time which means he could probably run 11 seconds electronic so he was a very good athlete but he played uh, i think 60 games of vfl football but then played a lot of vfa football same thing i'm sure again that he would have just been training tuesday thursdays play saturday and then in the off season done some sprint training with a professional sprints coach a couple of times a week i wanted to talk about was a coach i had kevin hardyman kevin played with essendon i think in the 30s or 40s and was also a decathlon athlete he actually became The first coach to coach a high jumper over seven foot in Australia and was a prodigious sprints coach coach Bevan Baker to the 1960 Olympics so we used to talk football we used to talk track and field a lot and he did say that his career was cruelled by a hamstring injury and he had no idea what to do with it and he had other people had no idea how to help him. So that's the other side of the coin. It's not always better in the past. We always say that Uh, this guy did run very fast and he had a hammy, which makes sense. And that was the end of his VFL career, not AFL at the time. So let's, uh, let's not just live in the past. Move forward to my career in AFL in the late eighties, I remember contacting Calvin Giles and after a few injuries, hamstring injuries at Essen Football Club and put forward uh, Craig Purdom's work uh, with the eccentric catches and, and a running program which was quite extensive running program at the time. So that was the first time I'd had sort of contact with that area. Uh, before my AFL career actually I was a sprints coach. I remember reading Yes's Review, a Russian review. Dr. Yeses who's still uh, active now. And he proposed that the glute ham raise, or the GHG, was a massive boost to preventing hamstring injury. So I remember an athlete who I was coaching, George Andrew, who was an engineer, a teacher, Paul White and myself, we, we, we built a glute ham raise, I think it was 1987, might have be been 1986, and we had it at Preston Athletics Club. And it, it certainly seemed to help, certainly seemed to help performance anyway. Moving back to AFL... the 1990s came around i'd invested in some glute ham raises through melbourne gym equipment and then read up on eccentric leg curls at the time two up one down had read a a fair bit at that time already about the posterior chain and back extensions double leg not single leg back extensions so the, the the basis of my hamstring injury prevention program in '91, well '92, '93, really was two up, one down, leg curls, glute ham raises, and back extensions, and pretty much across the board, we were doing that. We certainly had a really good sprint coach then, Oscar Kenda, and we were doing some once a week. We were doing some flat out sprinting. It was a bit of an unacceptable period in the mid '90s where we were really pushing heavy weights, very heavy squats, very heavy power cleans, and I'd say heavier than now. It was probably a little bit too much injury at the time, so. Went back and look at all the Paul Check type exercises, which were a a lot of Swiss ball hamstring curls, jackknives, trunk stability work, glute bridges, whatever. And also Dance Australia was starting to work with footballers at the time. Uh, Craig Phillips and him and seeing people at Dance Australia doing some Pilates. To be honest, it it seemed to really help some players. So I, I swung around my methods quite a lot and went to a much more, Pilates glute activation type pull check program with a view to preventing injury and in this case hamstring injury went into the Geelong area which was uh, 1998. Uh, after that I moved to a very a model which was pretty much multifactorial. My high performance manager experience finished in 2007 at the Bulldogs but since then, obviously, I've worked in elite sport with sprinters and power athletes. But looking back on that period from 2000 to 2006 in particular at Geelong, we, we, we had stats we could compare with, and we certainly were well below the stats with the hamstring injury prevention. So this is not about beating my chest, but about the fact that we, we put together what, what I would consider was a multifactorial model where we certainly analysed sprint technique. We certainly did a lot of pilates, core stability, lumbopelvic work. Uh, We certainly did eccentric work and Nordics, RDLs. We definitely did a lot of sprinting. That was an important part of the program. And we certainly looked at individual needs and individual differences. We continued doing a lot of glute work, reverse hypers, single leg glutes. Uh, different type of uh, hip exercises. We, we, we never did heavy hip thrust, but uh, there was a consistent theme of doing a lot of glute work. So that was covered. And th- there may be an argument that the, the, the glute work we were doing, the single leg glute work and the isolation work was possibly more effective than the heavy hip thrust in terms of preventing hamstring injury. Uh, we also um, had a heavy emphasis on single legs, fist ball hamstring curls, foam roller curls, and making sure that a player could do uh, a number of repetitions on a single leg hamstring curl and, and maintain proper lumbo-pelvic position in reality really an isometric position. So yeah, I, I think we were starting to cover a lot of things that that's spoken about now. Uh, we started to employ better recovery uh, people there, masseurs and soft tissue therapists and full-time physiotherapists and. By 2006 we would consistently been well under the average for AFL uh, hamstring injury. I would like to now go through a number of the factors that could be involved in a multifactorial model for hamstring injury prevention and discuss them somewhat subjectively and possibly rate them in importance. In terms of research, all the factors in a multifactorial model, in this case, model for hamstring injury prevention need to be initially researched in in isolation you you can't mishmash things it's critical that i put a coach's hat on and not a researcher's hat on but there has to be some mix in between but nevertheless i'm putting my coach's hat on and and discuss hamstring injury prevention from somebody that's actually working day-to-day with 40 players, 40 individuals from 18 to 35. We're hearing a lot on Twitter and a lot on social media. People are exhorting and almost with sort of fanaticism really that that high-speed running or sprinting, really sprinting, is the new Nordic. And it's actually quite boring, and if I hear another person say it, I'll go, hey. The the, the research with repeated bouts, of you know, protective uh, effects of eccentric exercise, go back a long time. And certainly from a practical coach's perspective, I met a very famous Norwegian coach at the Sydney Olympics, and he demonstrated to me, or showed me, or taught me, a session that he used pre-speed to create a protective effect and that was doing repeat 50s at about 90 percent speed in flats with about three minutes rest about five repetitions six six minute repetitions in sets start off with uh, two sets of five and then over about say three to six weeks, build that up gradually up to 20 or 30 run through is never going above 90 percent so he he, his theory with that was the biomechanics of the movement was similar to to running fast and that you were getting enough stimulus and adaptive response to that that would prepare you for the next bouts or next plan or periodization of actual maximal sprinting so i tried that session once in afl and the noise i got at the start or the DOMS, the late onset muscle soreness. And the fear factor from the coaches was, was extreme. We did it on a synthetic track. It was done, what I assumed was 90% of their speed and everything was timed. And the next day, the next two days was mayhem. We continued that. I built that up to either 15 repetitions or 20 repetitions over about a month. I do remember the physiotherapists and, and, and ourselves, the strength and conditioning staff, not hearing any murmurs about delayed onset muscle soreness in hamstrings for the rest of the season it did seem to work so it's not new in terms of afl there has seen some really good research in terms of i suppose the best word to the best way to term it is the paradox that, that that's involved with dosing high-speed running and, and to be honest we really need to call that sprinting And before I actually go into AFL, I wrote a hamstring rehabilitation book in 2007. What impacted me a fair bit was some research by Sherry, uh, which looked at the different eccentric forces on the hamstrings, uh, on the deceleration of the lower leg in the late swing phase. So let's not kid ourselves, that seems to be the major mechanism. And just before touchdown, and at 95% of maximum speed, he claimed there was 80% eccentric force. So 80% of maximum speed, 55%, building up to 95%, 80% of eccentric force on the just before touchdown, eccentric force. And at 100%, 100% force. Okay, so peak stretch, 95 to 100 obviously leads to the current of excitement that if you run a fair bit above 95% you're going to get adaptation and obviously therefore if you're running fast 95% you're going to get adaptive responses which will create a short term and long term protective effect. I, I think that's obviously in simplicity is pretty right. Going back to the the research that was done in 2016, uh, British Journal of Sports Medicine, on the effect of high speed running on hamstring strain injury risk. I suppose the best way I interpret that was, well, that's a paradox. Don't do enough, you get an injury, do too much, you get an injury. Makes intuitive sense if you think about it. You've got a game on a Saturday, you've got another game on a Saturday. You keep smacking them with high speed running and sprinting in between. They won't have recovered. They won't recover for the game. Prone to injury. If you do this in pre-season, same thing. Really, you've got a bit more window for recovery there. But if you you cumulatively add too much sprinting, there is a a bandwidth. The problem there is obviously we're going back to when we look at the interactions. We're looking at the bandwidth varies for individuals depending on what their uh, chronic load is of, of, of sprinting. And at any one point, looking at a lot of factors already, just heaps of research going back with you know things like you know the potent protective effect conferred by four bouts of low intensity eccentric exercise. Uh, another one from two thousand eight: light load eccentric exercise confers protection against a subsequent bout of more demanding eccentric exercise. So it's not as simple as saying. Let's just do a heap of sprinting and we're going to be right because that just mimics the action and therefore why do Nordics or why do anything else? You need to build the athlete up slowly to be able to do this sprinting or you can go to the casino, roll the dice, sprint everybody and the people that fall, fall over, they luck. Just hope they're not superstars. This big, in the research and in the discussions too, we've got this big dichotomy or this big split almost two camps that people are saying sprinting and people are saying eccentric exercise, that's really wrong. And I'm going to explore the further the interactions of basically everything with everything really. And it really depends on the individual. You need to look at the individual and and work out what they need from a lot of perspectives. And when you look at the interactions, recent article about the attenuation of eccentric exercise, induced muscle damage by preconditioning exercises, basically saying that if you do some isometric work at lengthened state, and if you do some eccentric work, let's keep it pretty simple, before you're actually smacking some sprinting, you're you're going to get uh, less delayed onset muscle soreness, less eccentric damage, and it makes obvious sense, therefore, to have a conditioning program. So, the whole concept of having two camps is, is, is really wrong and goes back to this emotion and fanaticism in this area. So it, it definitely depends a lot on what an individual needs and where they're at. And in terms of high-speed running or sprinting, you know the, the simplistic new Nordic concept that's out now, really damaging because a player may not be ready to sprint and needs to be built up slowly. May have predisposing issues that require a reconditioning phase of uh, trunk stability, isometric work into eccentric exercises, into general strength. Overly simplistic. And when we look at interactions with high speed running dosage of sprinting and the protective effect versus doing robotics in this case, there's been a lot of excellent research dosing the Nordic eccentric exercise in in the soccer slash football environment and clubs that have done it have had massive percentage uh, improvement in uh, hamstring injuries so so there's two ways to look at it obviously the preconditioning really helped and it's quite necessary uh, but also the way soccer is trained unless the players are doing some high speed running you know, there's a lot of acceleration, deceleration, small sort of games, everything's in close. So they're never really reaching maximal speeds unless the strength and conditioning guy or person is giving them some maximal speed. So therefore, you possibly could theorise that Nordics is almost a panacea in the soccer environment because many teams would never really be reaching maximal speed. So it's a critical protective effect that occurs, which is better than nothing. And that's not denigrating the Nordic exercise, that's just looking at possible interactions between uh, exercise prescription, load management, what's given, the sport, and the needs. So then somebody could say, well, why don't they just do sprinting? I think it's just a mix, to be honest. I wanted to move on to another area, another factor, with running technique and trunk stability. Now I wanted to actually incorporate the two together because that's two different factors, but they are so closely aligned. But I wanted to finish in terms of the running, uh, sprinting volume that needs to be done to adapt to the eccentric needs of sprinting and, and, and the buzzword these days, the, the new Nordic, that is uh, called sprinting. I want to go back to my examples of Jesse Owens, uh, 1936 Olympic Games, 100 meter winner. Super athlete and Pastor Doug Nichols, who even time 100 yard runners, approximately probably an 11 second 100 meter runner, and a star VFL player of his day. And also, my third example of the ex 1930s decathlete who'd played football at a high level and had hamstrings and couldn't work things out. So, so the question I often asked in the, in the late 80s how did many players survive? Without any eccentric strength conditioning in the gym, I never saw any when I when I first started a lesson in 1987. Until I started doing glute hams in 1991. Did Jesse Owens do nordics, RDLs, single leg RDLs, two legs up, one leg up, one down, um, isometric exercises? Did Pastor Doug Nichols? Did yeah, they ran fast? And to be honest, genetics hasn't changed that much. And whilst the games change and the demands have changed of the game dramatically, these guys were fast, and they'd be fast in our day, and they would have run fast in the games. So they didn't hurt themselves. I often wondered about the theory about fascicles, and, and certainly this is a coach's hat, not a researcher's hat, and the shortening fascicles in mid year or late year being an indicator. For an injury. Well, intuitively, a coach says, well, if you maintain some sprinting volume throughout the year and you maintain an adaptive response, say once a week of maximal running, uh, wouldn't uh, the fascicles stay uh, long, for want of a better word? Therefore, why, why did these guys survive? Why did they survive in those days? Why did they survive in the late 80s? You know, some big boys and some fast boys that I was training then. Genetically, some people are gifted. Some people had very few problems through adolescence and coming into adulthood as an athlete. They do not need a lot of intervention, we've seen that. Obviously, the flip side from a performance perspective, plyometrics, weight training, along with better tracks, etc., has meant a lot faster athletes. The addition of weight training and the addition of hip extensor work and hamstring strength work, has for sure helped performance. Where do you weight that relative to high-speed running? That's probably the question a lot of coaches have done. But what I was leading to was my third example of the old-timer who had a lot of injuries and couldn't work it out, nobody could work it out at all. Pretty convinced that Kevin Hardiman would have possibly survived had he had access to doing the array of strength exercises that are from a preventative perspective to a rehabilitation perspective that are available now. And obviously, he may not have been as well-balanced an athlete, By mechanically, he may not have been as perfect as the other guys I mentioned, and pretty much probably most footballers, team sport athletes fit into Kevin's mould. So, I think we need to always keep that in perspective when we keep talking about you know, the social media rant that we hear now that, i oh, well, just do sprinting. Is it, that, why do anything else? It's, in fact, as reductionist, as just saying, just do Norwich. So I want to move on to other factors that can be included in a the model. There's a lot of talk about running technique being a significant factor in prevention of hamstring injury. That's just another factor which is extremely vague. I cannot discuss running technique personally without putting in context the lumbopelvic stability or trunk stability or abdominal work or core work because along with strength, range of motion and lumbopelvic stability you're getting interactions all over the place. The notion that you do running drills and that will impact your running technique is, is, is too simplistic. What normally should happen in an elite environment is that you would video somebody running maximally in a straight line, maximum velocity almost, a couple of angles and you'd analyze their running technique. Quite often with AFL footballers you see an overstriding occurring, you see a lot of rear side mechanics, an inability to get hip up knee up toe up or front side mechanics for want of a better word and then plunging into overstriding and then creating a whole cycle that Creates problems Now, if a player is slow and strong, they'll probably just survive, they'll just be a bit inefficient. Generally, fast players or players that have had injuries or all the players that we've spoken about uh, tend to get injured because of some inefficiency in their biomechanics. Again, going back to the concept of all the interactions between all the factors that can influence hamstring prevention, it's critical to look at why we're not running properly. So one of the things, obviously, is the high knee drill. What tends to happen is that when your foot strike occurs, if you've got sufficient strength or sufficient eccentric strength or sufficient power in the legs, you're going to bounce off the track and your knee's going to come up. Okay, So you don't drag your knee up with your trunk. Just doing high knees per se is, is good because there is a certain amount of conditioning, but obviously the impact forces aren't the same as running. There has to be focus on developing some power in the legs. So that's just one small area that is misunderstood. So just doing drills per se will probably mean, and I've seen it before, especially in AFL footballers, they'll lean back, they go into posterior pelvic tilt to allow the, the knee to come up, and then obviously that has no relevance when you're running fast or accelerating especially. So these interactions are continuously occurring Obviously, from a trunk stability perspective, you know you've got a 3D action occurring. You know you're going to anterior pelvic tilt. Your hamstring's on stretch. If it gets too much on stretch, and you can't control it. Then you're over taxing the hamstring, and then you're going to cause problems. So, trunk stability is an issue. Ability to control the trunk. Either you, you you've got you've got the ability, or you need to develop that ability, and that just basically develops and. Uh, some musculature really uh, ability comes into it also because if somebody's got extremely tight quads then they cannot get proper angles when they when they're getting uh, front side mechanics or getting into front side mechanics and that will again cause issues so it could be one issue there could be three issues in running technique and then obviously doing some running drills just to actually synchronize some of the movements and 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 then try and um, bring in the trunk stability bring in a little bit of power into the drills but the drills per se and just saying to somebody run properly is simplistic. the issue with running drills where it does teach you to reposition the limbs when your both feet are off the ground in mid-stride so that they can then be put back onto the ground in the most efficient position. So that is something that you can achieve with doing running drills but still does require trunk stability, mobility, etc. Or, you know, you do things like wickets with, with footballers. You need to look at the physical reasons why they can't achieve proper shapes or positions. And the physical reasons why even they can't do some drills? Sometimes you know, and that could be they just haven't got sufficient, sufficient trunk stability to maintain an upright position. So when we when we look at the lumbo-pelvic area too, looking at not just the core, basically should include the hips here and the glute med, the ability to control the pelvis laterally, and the Lower back and, and the old time bodybuilding term of the back tie ins with the glutes, I think, are quite neat. Recently, I spoke about this and I felt that a comprehensive look at trunk stability or lumbar pelvic stability from an assessment perspective, doing a lower abs test where you lower the legs and see whether you can maintain um, a flat back, uh, doing the McGill test, the Sirensis test in, in particular, it, it, I think is important to see whether you've got. Back extensor strength. These these imbalances, if they're there, they again interact on your running technique, which then interacts, obviously, on in your ability to control your pelvis, which inter- which then causes uh, a fatigue factor in the hamstrings, and quite possibly can lead to um, susceptibility to injury. I'm not going to say injury. The whole area is totally linked. See if we move now to knee flexor strength. Sufficient evidence to say that knee flexor strength is a critical issue, and obviously, eccentric knee flexor strength is a critical issue in preventing hamstrings. I've struggled with the camps that you see on Twitter, where somebody says, "Oh, you know, one-legged hamstring hold is the way to go because it's an isometric uh, hold." You know, it's not. Um, at the terminal range leg extension, in, in, in running, um, you're getting an isometric contraction, and then you know somebody else is saying, "Well, no, the nordics are more relevant." Blah blah blah. To be honest, you just do it all. You do hip extensor work. You, you work the multifidus. Uh, the the single leg hamstring hold, to be honest, is is a core exercise. I mean, I I can't see. I, I think some of the some of the um, isometric hip exercises, they're they're core exercises, not hamstring exercises, you're actually having to stabilize the lower back, the glutes, and that's an important facet of controlling your pelvis, and in turn, being able to function optimally through all ranges, if you can do so, and not fatigue. There's a lot more to it. One issue, and, and, and I think, when you put the coach's hat on, and when you actually are in an environment as I've said at the start, with 40 to 50 players, from 18 to 35, slow to fast, some injury history to no injury history. It could be any one reason that somebody, or any one thing, or a number of things that an individual needs to work on to prevent hamstrings. And that could change week to week given their load. But One of the players that I dealt with was Ronnie Burns from Geelong, who was super fast, so in the classic 20-metre test, I think he ran 2.73 with me, so that's fast. Uh, But he he did have some hamstrings before I went there, and he had some hamstrings when I was there. He was a pretty strong guy, and he had strong legs. Never did a Nordic test, didn't ascertain that, but the one thing he did struggle with and I remember this very clearly, it was a single leg hamstring curl, and he just simply couldn't control it. And watching him run on video, there seemed to be a direct correlation to that. In inverted commas, he couldn't control his pelvis. If you can't control your pelvis when you're running, your ham is being yanked around all over the place, and obviously you would assume it's going to get fatigue. We've got the nordboard test. i actually, I actually leased a nordboard. Found it really interesting. One interesting player. I once it was a young player. He, he was actually at AFL level, uh, who was totally immature, 16 year old, but a very good player, and uh, couldn't control a one-legged arabesque, but had played a lot of soccer and a lot of AFL and never got injured. When I did a nordboard test, he had about 350 newtons, and they were both equal. And I thought, well, there you go. There's a bit of relevance to this type of testing. Obviously, I probably tested about 50 people, and I think it's a critical test to do, despite some of the criticism. It needs to be done in the context of every other thing I've spoken about. You can get a yo-yo machine these days. Uh, There's not many in Australia, from what I know. Obviously, you can do isokinetic tests, and I don't think they're as bad as everybody says. I've seen... Some excellent results. Many, many years ago, I started doing my masters on a biodex. Uh, Gavin Brown, who was the captain of Collingwood at the time, had had a stress fracture, started running again, but hadn't been doing any maximal sprinting at all, hardly any running at all. Uh, he'd been doing weights. We did a, a, an isokinetic hamstring test at, at fast speed. He, he couldn't control the eccentric portion. Uh, to be honest, we added six weeks of very fast running, we redid the test and that eccentric test on the on the, the biodex machine improved markedly so I think that in isolation somebody who is not involved in research and is a coach can use a test and then interpret it and, and it's, it's meaningful data when you couple it with what you're seeing as in the Gavin Brown example and also when you're actually putting it together with the whole picture of all the interactions we've spoken about. Certainly the last thing I do want to talk about when you put all this together if you actually look at the fact that everything does interact well in my opinion it does are many factors in a multifactorial model for injury prevention quite possibly the most important thing is that in an AFL football department or to be honest any football department but the scope of what happens changes obviously as you move from elite to sub elite it's the ability for everybody to be on the same page within the staff, for everybody's ego to be parked at the door, especially in these types of areas because they as I've said, they can be quite emotional. Communication channels again, critical. The protocols have to be clearly documented, there has to be from masseur right through to doctor, to the wellness person. To the load management person it has to be hand in glove because this, is, this injury prevention affair is not an isolated thing where you just do one test and you know what's going on. It's a day-to-day assessment of every player as they warm up, as they train, as they finish and then all the meetings occur, doctors, physios, fitness people, etc discussing each player and working out what their loads are and working out what they're going to do the next day. And the other problem that probably occurs as the organisations get bigger and high-performance managers um, you know, are, are, are as much involved in admin as, as they are in hands-on, is that there's a lot of delegation. So I think there's a real challenge within clubs for all the different departments not to become silos. The, the strength and conditioning slash weights coach has to make sure that he or she is not doing a strength session the day before a lot of kicking has occurred. And that seems simple, but to coordinate kicking, sprinting, load management, weight sessions, and have it all together is quite a job. And especially when these days there's a lot of people in these organisations. So that's a positive because it's a lot more sophisticated, there's a lot more individualised programming because there's enough people there, there's load management, there's information coming out of everywhere. Flip side is, that you need to keep everybody on the same page, hand in glove, everybody needs to know what everybody else is doing. The ability of an organisation to work cohesively can assist in reducing the prevention of what we're, what we're talking about, hamstring injury. So thanks a lot. It was just a bit of an insight into what I went through, what I think still happening, to be honest. And, um, yeah, I, I welcome any criticism <laughs> of this uh, chat. I might be way off the mark. I've been out of it for a while. But I have been in the elite sport since then. And uh, thanks for listening.